I guess after this morning, we're stopping them after a TNF inhibitor effectively treats something, but I'm not going to discuss that. But let me give you a brief primer to that last slide, because I bet many of you, do you guys know, um, what's a MAB? Any drug that ends with MAB? Monoclonal antibody, okay? What's a NIB? So you saw tofacitinib, filgotinib. Those are all JAK inhibitors, okay? So the, and the odds are these uh, sphingomycin things. So by the end of the, the letters of the generic name, you can understand what class they're in. So you've got a lot of MABs and a lot of NIBs that are, are currently under development. But uh, I'm going to go back to the sometimes considered old boring stuff and talk about really our first-line agents for both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and try and, because, you know, it's still important to avoid going to the next level if you don't and so if you don't need it. So dose optimization with any drug, including our first-line drugs, is going to be uh, very relevant. So in ulcerative colitis, uh, as you guys all, you all know, our first-line agents are the amino salicylates for induction. And for patients who respond to amino salicylate induction agents, uh, induction, then maintenance therapy with the amino salicylate is appropriate. But this leaves a lot of uh, questions within that. So what do we do about the doses for induction? What do we do about the doses for maintenance? We have the option of oral or rectal uh, administration. How do we factor these in? And, and let me just give you my pearls uh, regarding that. We haven't really discussed this yet, but it will be appropriate, again, positioning for this afternoon's case-based discussions, that the AGA, uh, in its pathways for both ulcerative colitis and for Crohn's disease, don't use that, quote, moderate to severe activity as their discriminator. What they use is the prognosis of the patient. And uh, we've alluded to uh, the bad prognostic patients. Uh, they're somewhat, we've said for many years, like the Supreme Court definition of pornography, hard to define, but you know it when you see it. So who's at bad risk? The patients who are at bad risk are patients who have, get disease at young age, who have extensive disease, who already have complications in Crohn's disease if they have perianal fistula, but both in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, deep ulcers are a bad prognosis for the progression that Jean-Fred has talked about in Crohn's disease or non-response to medical therapy in the setting of ulcerative colitis. The patients who don't have that we're administering therapy based on their more uh, related to their symptoms in this situation. And the good prognosis patients, which is a large percentage of ulcerative colitis, but only about 20% of patients with Crohn's disease may be justified these first-line agents. In ulcerative colitis, they are oral or rectal amino salicylates, depending on the extent of disease, um, or in combination. So um, salicylates, the five ASA agents. Uh, go back to the uh, mother of all uh, designer drugs, sulfasalazine. Now, um, how many of you are actually using sulfasalazine in your practice? About a handful. Uh, how many of you, okay, so how many of you using sulfasalazine? 
And how many of you are younger than the age of 50 that are using it? That are using it? Okay. So you've been educated on the safety of the, of the mesalamine compounds, uh, but I'll put forth that whatever, if you give the same dose of mesalamine, of 5-ASA, from any of the different compounds, they will operate approximately the same in oral administration. In rectal administration, there have yet to been any data that shows that giving more than one gram of mesalamine rectally is better. So what's on the market are the four gram mesalamine enemas. The reality is in European studies, one gram enemas were as effective as four gram enemas. As far as oral agents, there are different delivery systems. The conjugated drugs, sulfasalazine, olsalazine, and balsalazide um, are all 5-ASA linked to a carrier that will be broken down, an azo bond that will be broken down by bacteria in the colon for delivery of the drug specifically into the colon. There are pH uh, release agents that include um, uh, a, uh, the delayed release mesalamine, azacol essentially, um, also uh, the MMX formulation, Lealda essentially, and their generics uh, are all pH release according to different uh, acidity within the small and large intestine. And then um, there are granulated products such as the uh, continuous relief or Penteza or Apriso formulations uh, that release continually uh, through ethyl cellulose granules that release along the intestine. Again, the bottom line is that it's the dose that matters. And one of the issues is some of our third-party payers prefer balsalazide to the mesalamine compounds because they get a discount on it. Well, balsalazide is a fine agent, but the doses that are currently recommended are really essentially uh, similar to about 2.4 grams of mesalamine. And in order to get up to a higher dose closer to 4 or 4.8, you really need to double the number of pills of balsalazide. Equally effective, but um, again, the dose is extremely important. So as far as dose response, this concept of, of dose response really goes back to sulfasalazine. With sulfasalazine, the increased doses up to four grams of sulfasalazine uh, were associated with dose-related side effects. With the advent of the mesalamine compounds and all of the other non-conjugated ones that I described, there is no dose-related toxicity up, a, up even slightly above the approved doses. So some of the patients that we have are being treated with 4.8 grams of oral mesalamine, as well as a mesalamine rectally, 4 grams. That's a total of 8.8 grams. We've not seen increased toxicity even in those doses of mesalamine. Nevertheless, there have been a number of trials that have looked at different doses. And the bottom line is that the higher doses have been more effective at both inducing and maintaining remission. Nevertheless, it's not that crisp 
of a difference. And I'll show you some data regarding trials. This is the data we've shown for many years now of the ASCEND trials looking at the Azacol formulation at either 2.4 or 4.8 grams. In the patients who had milder disease, it didn't matter. However, it's always been the patients who have had more severe, in the moderate to severe category, who have responded, or in the setting of um, an example from the MMX formulation, in the 5-ASA naive, again, no benefit of higher doses versus the lower doses, but in the patients who are already being treated or who have been dose escalated from 2.4 to 4.8, that's where we see the benefit. So the higher doses of 4.8, 4 to 4.8, are for patients who have had more moderate to moderate activity or have not responded or have required corticosteroids in the past. As far as maintenance therapy, the line that I've said for decades now is you go home from the dance with the partner you took. The concept of reducing the dose, we've learned from sulfasalazine, is associated with more relapses. So whatever dose it takes to get the patient well, it's been our experience that we tend to keep them at that dose. There have not been any good controlled randomized studies of patients who have required 4.8 to see whether they can be maintained at lower doses. And this is, again, a pharmaceutical study we've quoted for over a decade uh, from Bill Sanborn that looked at patients who continued on their inductive dose through maintenance or decreased it, and evidence for that individuals who decrease their dose in maintenance actually have a higher likelihood of relapsing than patients who maintain their dose during that. And then the last controversy we get regarding the 5-ASA drugs is oral versus topical. And again, we've seen some studies. Uh, the most famous one was geez, done in 1997. It's 20 years old by now, uh, by Mike Softy from Cincinnati, who's now retired, by the way, um, who gave uh, oral uh, 2.4 grams of mesalamine compared to a 4-gram uh, enema compared to the combination. These were patients with left-sided colitis. And indeed, as you can see in black, the combined group had overall benefits. Now, one of the questions in this is they also got a higher dose. So the oral got 2.4, the rectal got 4 grams, and the combined got 6.4 grams. Uh, in some other studies, it has been clarified. It's really uh, not the dose, but it's really the combination. And indeed, even in patients with extensive colitis, combining oral and rectal, even if the disease is above the splenic flexure, has had clinical benefits for patients. On the other hand, as we all know, um, you don't always need combination therapy for patients, but it depends how you ask the question. If you ask the question, what do patients prefer, most are going to prefer oral. But if you ask what is the best, it's like in Crohn's disease. What's the best therapy? It's combining uh, a biologic with uh, immunosuppressive. In ulcerative colitis, the best is combining oral and rectal, but we don't always need it, and it's not always the, necessarily the best uh, for the patients. As far as comparing one versus the other in other clinical trials with equal doses, it doesn't matter very much. 
But a pearl I want you to understand is that if your patients require rectal therapy to gain control, they often need some kind of continuous rectal treatment. Um, we can't, we are not always able to convert them over from an oral agent, from a rectal agent to an oral agent. We need to be aware of that. So in my practice, I tend to gradually reduce the rectal therapy. So I will give the uh, nightly therapy until the patients have achieved their target, whatever target we're going to be giving them, and then I will gradually taper that. But I find that there's a significant proportion who need either every other night or once a week or twice a week uh, rectal therapy to stay well, and it, it is really quite variable. There have been dose studies looking at frequency of rectal therapies, and again, as you could imagine, there's a dose response. The people on every night therapy do better than the people on alternate nights versus once a week, but you can still sustain a significant proportion of patients uh, even at the lower doses with this. Now, we also have a second uh, agent available for mild to moderate ulcerative colitis, and that is uh, budesonide. And budesonide has been available now, you're familiar for probably 20 years since its approval for uh, Crohn's disease, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Uh, but now there are formulations that are directly targeting the colon. I would urge you to be cautious because we're seeing a lot of inappropriate substitution of oral budesonide, uh, giving the delayed release instead of the colonic release in ulcerative colitis. The delayed release does not work in ulcerative colitis nearly as well as the continuous release um, of budesonide formulation. In foam formulations, and foams are often preferred from uh, our patient's perspective compared to the retentions. Um, budesonide has been effective. Uh, David's also been one of the uh, authors in the studies of budesonide foam uh, in the setting of distal ulcerative colitis. Um, I'm not going to talk about uh, the thiopurines today. In a 20-minute discussion, it would take me 20 minutes to talk about uh, azathioprine or mercaptopurine. So I'm not going to talk about it, except that it is not an inductive agent. I see a lot of patients who are referred because they were not responding to 5-ASA, and their doctor puts them on uh, azathioprine or mercaptopurine on top of 5-ASA that has never been shown to be effective. The only uh, role that the uh, thiopurines have in ulcerative colitis is maintaining steroid-induced remissions or used in combination with biologics to reduce immunogenicity. They're not inductive agents for patients who have not responded in ulcerative colitis. Now, the um, colonic release budesonide, essentially the Eucerus product, has been tested both against placebo and against a 2.4 gram dose of mesalamine. And in uh, the studies uh, that uh, several of us also contributed to, included David, um, the budesonide was shown to be effective in mild to moderate ulcerative colitis at a nine milligram dose and actually was superior to the 
same dose of a delayed release uh, budesonide formulation within these trials. So be cautious to make sure that the pharmacies are actually giving uh, the appropriate therapy. I think we've been through these algorithms for, for this in ulcerative colitis already. And um, again, if you're induced with mesalamine, you maintain with mesalamine. One of the questions remains is what do you do about patients that you induce with budesonide? Can, be they, can they be transitioned to mesalamine? And this is one of the gaps in our understanding, and frankly a gap in the development of budesonide in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, is that we don't know how to taper it. We don't have uh, other approaches. And again, in my practice, I tend to taper to every other day therapy with um, budesonide. Uh, but there are a number of patients who become uh, budesonide dependent. Now, similarly in Crohn's disease, and I can shorten the discussion around uh, amino salicylates, I think it's very important for you to understand uh, Jean-Fred's original study uh, slide of the progression of Crohn's disease. When that slide's been shown in different ways by Jacques Cohn, and again a French study group, and you've seen that pie chart of progression from um, luminal Crohn's disease to transmural disease as strictures or fistula, at diagnosis, 80% of patients with Crohn's disease have only luminal disease. And over 20 years, that proportion switches to 80% of patients actually have transmural complications. So from an AGA perspective of dividing patients by prognosis, 80% of patients with Crohn's disease are going to progress. Yet 20% are not. And I think that this is where some of the confusion regarding the uh, early trials with the mesalamine has actually come into play. Again, the AGA recommends dividing patients with Crohn's disease based on prognosis, the same factors that I already mentioned, in particular extensive disease, deep ulcers, patients who have uh, perianal manifestations at diagnosis have a bad prognosis. These are not patients that you ought to be using mesalamine on. You, if you are using it, you have to find the sweet spot of that 20% of patients who have very mild disease, which in my, again, in my view, it's not early Crohn's, because early Crohn's can still have a bad prognosis. In my view, it's superficial Crohn's. If the Crohn's looks like ulcerative colitis with little apathy or granularity, but no deep ulcers, those may be the patients who are gonna be okay with 5-ASA. The problem is that the studies done with the mesalamine agents were done in the 1990s. The first trial with um, the biologics, by the way, and all subsequent biologic studies, randomize patients who respond to biologics to maintenance therapy. When mesalamine was tested, it was tested treat through. And when, if we had treated early studies with biologics, in a treat-through pattern, in other words, not randomizing the responders but taking everyone moving forward, we would have seen negative trials as we did with sertoluzumab, pegol. That treat-through trial was negative. We'd have seen the same thing. We've selected responders. We've never done that with mesalamine, and I still believe there's a role in mild disease. But let me say, 
That's 20% perhaps at best of Crohn's disease. And I would still do what we do. I would still treat to the target. And if I'm not reaching that target, I'm going to advance the therapy in that situation. Um, but most of these trials are not done in the same way that we're doing trials this way. And indeed, if you look at a group of patients treated with prednisone, and this is again Jean-Fred's uh, old J. Todd group, uh, patients were treated with prednisone and randomized to mesalamine at a dose of 4 grams today, per day or placebo, and at the end of the year, there was 20% of patients in remission. That's that same 20% who probably had very mild disease and were not likely to progress. So I'm not advocating uh, 5-ASA in Crohn's disease, except perhaps in very mild disease, and you may not be able to discriminate results um, from a placebo. In the post-operative setting, there were very modest effects compared to what we've seen with antibiotics in combination with immunosuppressives or as we've seen with TNF inhibitors. So unfortunately, no prospective randomized studies. Uh, budesonide, on the other hand, has been compared to both uh, prednisone, and I consider budesonide essentially prednisone light. It's a less uh, uh, side effect, uh, it's a steroid with less systemic side effects, but it doesn't have maintenance benefits. The results last several months for patients as they are tapered off. You have the option of retreating, but a big question becomes, what do you do at the end of this? Because there was no maintenance benefit. And the question becomes, do steroids maintain remission? And most of us are unaware of a study that was looked differently from Europe. Um, the study was published by uh, Eric Schoon in Amsterdam. It's known as the Matrix study. And what they asked was, can you maintain patients in remission with either prednisone or budesonide on a long-term basis by just adjusting doses? So the end point in the study was not maintenance. All the patients were maintained in the remission. The end point of the study was bone density. And what they showed was that you could maintain patients in remission with adjusting doses of either budesonide or prednisone, but the patients treated with prednisone had a loss in bone density, and the patients treated with budesonide did not. But you, if you look at the average dose to sustain the clinical remission, and this is not endoscopic, it's not deep remission that John Fred has talked about, um, the dose of prednisone was about 17.5 milligrams necessary to sustain it, and those patients lost bone density. With budesonide, the average dose was 7.5 milligrams, higher than the 6 milligrams tested in the clinical trials of maintenance. Um, and so you can, there are a small group of patients who don't have a progressive form who may be maintained at low doses of um, uh, budesonide. So in summary, for aminosalicylates, they still are first-line agents, mild to moderate colitis. High doses are more effective than low doses in both induction and maintenance. Combination therapy is better. Some of the patients treated with rectal therapy are going to need prolonged rectal therapy. Less evidence in Crohn's disease. None of the guidelines anymore advocate mesalamine in Crohn's disease, yet in clinical trials it's still used a lot ineffectively in clinical practice. 
budesonide, a potential first or second line agent in ulcerative colitis, either alone or after aminosalicylate therapy. We just don't have great maintenance data with this. In Crohn's disease, again, advocated by all societies as a first-line agent in mild Crohn's disease. Those are patients who don't have the bad prognostic features with limited ileal or ileal-sequel disease. Thank you.